Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. This podcast contains graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. True North True Crime is produced on the territories of the Coast Salish people. At the 2017 trial of 30-year-old Cody Henniger, a forensic psychiatrist made the following conclusion. I would point out that psychosis distorts reality, including moral reality, the degree of distortion often matching the severity of symptoms. When psychosis is severe and sustained, and the patient is isolated from real-world feedback, it becomes increasingly likely that the unpredictable directions of psychotic symptoms will override the patient's moral compass. Psychotic experiences, with their urgency and the demand for attention, become the dominant reality for the sufferer. And morality, based on normal life experiences, fades away. Within the mindset, it is likely that he was incapable of knowing that his actions were morally wrong in the real world. As a society, most people have accepted that in some instances, there are those who are not criminally responsible for their actions, if it is proved that they were suffering from a mental disorder. However, there are still many questions as to what should happen after the trial. What does treatment and rehabilitation look like? When is there still a risk to the public? When is that risk diminished? What metrics are used? What safeguards are in place to ensure that tragedy does not happen again? But one of the biggest questions is really around preventative care. If a person is clearly suffering from a complex mental illness or their behavior is escalating towards a violent outcome, what mechanisms are in place to keep them and others safe? The vast majority of people living with complex and chronic brain disorders will never become violent. But in rare cases, they do. And this is one of those cases. In this episode, we present the murders of Bill, Ida, and Ann Ward. And you are listening to True North True Crime. Hello, everyone, and welcome to True North True Crime. Whether you're a longtime listener of our podcast or brand new, welcome and thank you so much for being here. If you'd like more True North True Crime, you can subscribe to TNTC Plus on Apple Podcasts or over on Patreon. For $5 a month, you'll get all episodes ad-free, early access to regular feed episodes, as well as exclusive bonus content. 
You can also hit subscribe or follow on whichever platform you're listening to this episode on, or go ahead and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts if you'd like another way to support our podcast. All right, let's go ahead and get right into tonight's case. In this episode, we are going to be covering a triple homicide out of Wise's Corner, Nova Scotia. This case is made even more tragic when you get into the person who carried out the homicides. Cody Henniger was 30 years old in 2015 when the events we are talking about in this episode took place. Unfortunately, Cody had been suffering from mental health issues, primarily schizophrenia, for years prior to 2015, but was unmedicated and untreated. Now, the reason we've decided to cover this case, other than a family member reaching out to us and asking to do so, is because of the very interesting questions and discussions that arise from it. When is it appropriate to force adults to take medication for mental illness? Is it ever appropriate? We know that some of our listeners just said no aloud in their brains. But what if a family member of yours murdered your parent and grandparents due to untreated psychological issues? Would your answer change? Those are the polarizing questions that today's case forces us to ask ourselves. We put this episode together using publicly available news articles and court documents. We also spoke with a family member close to the case. As an additional content warning, this episode deals with discussions of severe mental health diagnoses as well as three brutal murders. This case takes place in a very small farming community called Wise's Corner, or Weese's Corner, which is part of the Musquodobit Valley. Situated in the eastern region of Nova Scotia, the Musquodobit Valley stands as one of the nine expansive regions within the Halifax Regional Municipality, making it a haven for nature enthusiasts. Boasting exquisite natural splendor, unspoiled rivers, and quaint towns, this valley represents boundless opportunities for outdoorsy folk for hiking, biking, kayaking, canoeing, fishing, and camping. The area's immaculate lakes and woodlands offer a sanctuary for those with a penchant for nature. This region of Nova Scotia is primarily agricultural, with the upper part of the Musquodobit Valley comprising the largest farming district in the Halifax Regional Municipality. We had a hard time getting an exact number when it came to the population of this region, but it seems to be quite small. As an example, the Muscadobit Valley only has one high school, and in 2018, there were only 270 students enrolled at that high school. The victims in our case today are Clifford, William, or Bill Ward, Ida Ward, and their daughter, Anne Ward. At the time of this case, Bill was 81 years old and actually just two days away from his 82nd birthday. Ida was 74 years old and Anne was 54 and just 11 days away from her 55th birthday. William Bill Ward was born in Lower Sackville in 1933 and worked as a superintendent with the Department of Highways. Bill's wife, Ida, was born in Lance in 1941 and worked at Sears and ran the canteen at Dollar Lake Park, but her obituary says that her biggest accomplishment was being a homemaker. Bill and Ida's daughter, Ann Ward, worked at Zeller's, did some modeling, and was a talented seamstress. Again, Ann would say that her pride and joy came from raising her four children. 
We asked a family member what they could tell us about Bill, Ida, and Anne, and here's what they had to say. Bill was a really good man who never swore, never drank, and was so respectful to everyone he came across. He was very, very close to his brother Art, who lives out in Nova Scotia, not far from where they lived. He worked hard and lived a simple life. He did carpentry and woodworking. Ida was an incredibly kind woman with so much love to give and had a huge heart. She and Bill fostered many children and would feed everyone who came under their roof. Their kitchen was a safe space for the neighborhood. She would attend church weekly as well, and they were both a big part of their community. Anne was a strong but kind woman who went through some troubles with Cody's father, which was why he wasn't around. Anne largely raised Cody and his siblings on her own. To add on in describing their life, it was very simple, faithful, and loving. There are quite a few pictures of Bill and Ida sitting around the fire, Bill in his rocking chair, and that was the essence of their life together. Warmth and relaxation after a day of working hard, caring for others. So Bill and Ida were living in the small community of Wise's Corner at the time of this case. While it's unclear in our research how long the wards had been at the specific address, the Google Earth images show a weather-worn wooden house with multiple outbuildings on the premises with quite a bit of equipment strewn around the property, which leads us to believe that they had been there for quite some time, leading to the events we are talking about today. Living on this property with Bill and Ida was their 30-year-old grandson, Cody Henniger. According to a CBC article from December 12, 2016, it was Cody's grandfather, Bill, that was allowing him to live in a cabin on the property. This was apparently despite Cody's grandmother, Ida's concerns. Ida had a pretty good reason to be concerned about her grandson living on their property as Cody had been diagnosed with schizophrenia in 2014 and chose to remain unmedicated and untreated for this diagnosis. Christine Cozier, who was another daughter of Bill and Ida's, stated in a CTV news story, quote, We knew that he wasn't well, and we knew that he wasn't medicated. My mom used to be really nervous of him, and I would say, Mom, he wouldn't hurt a fly. In fact, Cody's family tried for years to get him help. They had been in touch with the MHMCT, or the Mental Health Mobile Crisis Team, in Nova Scotia, as well as the police. When asked about this case, the Schizophrenic Society of Nova Scotia says that Cody's case reflects a system that is crisis-driven rather than focusing on prevention and proactive treatment. Adding to the reasons for concern were that Cody Henniger was not a stranger to law enforcement and had two previous convictions on his record. On February 27, 2014, he was convicted of breaching an undertaking and uttering threats. He was given an 18-month probation term. And on October 29, 2008, he was convicted of possession of a weapon for a dangerous purpose, as well as assault. We asked the family member to give us a little bit more information about Cody Henniger. And this is what they said. Growing up, Cody witnessed his father not treating his mom very well, unfortunately. His father was known to drink too much, be physically violent and abusive to others, and was unstable as well. A lot of family believed that Cody's mental illness stemmed from his dad. Cody growing up had trouble in school and acted out. He was medicated as soon as they were able to convince doctors in the area that it was necessary. At the time of the incident, he had gone off of his medication. His family knew very well that he needed help, and for some time he agreed, but for whatever reason, he stopped taking his medication around the time of the incident. I'm not sure how much time beforehand. 
He had been seeing doctors for a number of years. He was 30 when the incident took place, and his family had been fighting to have him treated since he was a teenager. And even before then, as a child, they knew something was different. So the agreement that Bill and Cody had reached was if Cody was going to live in the cabin on their property, he was going to be responsible for paying the power bill. However, according to the statement of facts provided in court, Cody Henniger failed to keep up his end of the bargain. At around 4.30 p.m. on January 7, 2015, Cody Henniger was witnessed standing on the front lawn of the residence at 5336 Old Guysboro Road. Cody was observed standing and staring up at the house, which was on fire. Cody ended up fleeing the scene of the fire in his grandmother's blue Toyota Echo. Christine Cozier, Anne's sister, and Bill and Ida's daughter got the news from a member of her local church that her parents' house was on fire. When Christine arrived, she was greeted by two police officers who told her to get back, and she then watched the house burn. Heartbreakingly, Christine thought her parents weren't home and were instead at the hospital due to her father's heart condition. But then, in the middle of the street, the police told her the grim news that her parents were, in fact, inside the home. When speaking to CTV, Christine said, I had to pack up everything after that, try and get things back to normal which they never will be. Hours later, at 12.45 a.m., police caught up to Cody Henniger, 30 minutes away from the crime scene in the Milford area, where he rammed two police vehicles before being arrested. Within the Toyota Echo, law enforcement discovered bloodstains that were subsequently matched through DNA analysis to the victims. Among the findings were blood-soaked sledgehammers, a framing hammer with both blood and hair adhered to it, and a blood-smeared tissue all linked to the victims. During the initial search of the charred debris of the home, two sets of human remains were located. These two were identified as Clifford William Bill Ward and his daughter Ann Ward. Later, another body was located in the rubble, but this one took more time for investigators to identify based on the condition of the remains. Finally, on January 16th, nine days after the fire, the third set of human remains were positively identified as Ida Ray Ward. So in the burnt-out home were Cody's mother and his grandparents. When autopsies were conducted on the three victims, findings indicated that Bill and Ida had died of blunt force trauma to the head, while Anne had died of blunt force trauma to the head as well as carbon monoxide poisoning. It's believed that both Ida and Anne were still alive when the fire started inside the home. After discovering gasoline on a piece of gauze within the residence and on Anne Ward's boots and socks, investigators determined that the fire had been intentionally ignited. Around January 16, 2015, police charged Cody Henniger with three counts of second-degree murder in relation to the death of his grandparents and mother. He was also charged with fleeing the police and assault with a weapon likely related to ramming his vehicle into the police cruisers. Cody would subsequently be sent to receive treatment and wait for his trial at the East Coast Forensic Hospital. We're now going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Thank you. 
Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. And we are back. So when the murder trial began in December 2016, Cody admitted to killing both of his grandparents as well as his mother, but his defense team argued that he should be found criminally not responsible. Despite multiple witnesses hearing Cody making violent threats against members of his family in the months leading up to the triple homicide, the judge, the Crown, and defense lawyers agreed that he should be found criminally not responsible. According to a member of Cody's family that we spoke to for this episode, their grandmother insists that it was all very well planned. Cody had said that he wanted to go full circle, whatever that meant to him. He had planned to start with his grandparents, then his mom, then head to the mother of his child, where his daughter was living. However, during his conversation with forensic psychiatrist Dr. Scott Terriot, Cody shared that he had entered his grandparents' house with the intention of asking for water. However, when he reached into his backpack to retrieve his water bottle, he found himself gripping the handle of a hammer instead. He described experiencing a sensation of being controlled like a puppet, disconnected from his own actions, merely observing the horrific events that followed. But one witness contradicts Cody's claim of it being a spontaneous action. The witness stated that Cody didn't hold up his end of the bargain that he had made with his grandfather, that Cody was to pay the power bill if he wanted to stay there. Allegedly, Bill was considering turning off the power, and he actually did so on the day of the murders. We are going to dive into the court proceedings that we have access to, and the big question in this trial was whether sufficient evidence had been produced to establish on the balance of probabilities that Section 16.1 of the Criminal Code applies, and that a verdict under Section 674.34 should be rendered finding Cody Hennigar not criminally responsible for the three counts of second-degree murder. The court would need to prove two things. First, that Cody had a mental disorder at the time the homicides occurred, and second, that the mental disorder rendered him incapable of knowing that his actions were wrong. There were no witnesses to the killings, and Cody Hennigar did not testify at trial. While it is impossible to say what exactly was in the mind of Cody at the time, three experienced forensic psychiatrists have all said that he was not capable of knowing his acts were wrong because he suffered from a major and severe psychiatric illness. Among the statement of agreed-upon facts were repeated references by family members of Cody having schizophrenia as well as the documented medical history 
and observations from both mental health professionals and laypersons confirming the onset and diagnosis of the illness. One of the forensic psychiatrists, Dr. Scott Theriot, stated that Cody was aware of his actions, but perceived them as being out of his control. He went on to say, I believe that Mr. Henniger's behavior towards his grandparents and mother can be viewed as a case of automatism. For those who aren't familiar with that term, here's the definition. An automatism is an act committed during a state of unconsciousness or grossly impaired consciousness. Dr. Terrio went on to say that Cody perceived the police who were chasing him as being the boyfriend of his former girlfriend or dark forces attempting to prevent two worlds from coming together, stopping the change over to the new world. So at the time, Cody was under the impression that by killing his family members, a new or better world would begin. So the conclusion that Dr. Terrio reached was that Cody believed his actions had a greater moral purpose so his actions would not be construed as morally wrong. Another forensic psychiatrist that was tasked with testifying at the trial was Dr. Lorazby, and he noted that some of the early and unusual behavior pertained to a fear of landmines in the lawn and booby traps in the shed. He also noted that resistance and dismissal of the diagnosis by an individual is very common and that this applied to Cody Hanniger. Cody's parole officer for one of his previous offenses observed worsening signs of psychosis in Cody and was so concerned by the decline that she wrote to officials out of fear of potential future violence. Dr. Lorazby spoke of family members often being targeted and the presence of pre-existing threats, and he explained it is very likely the previous expressions of anger and threats were largely rooted in schizophrenia. The doctor went on to detail that Cody began to respond to treatment and medication during his time at East Coast Forensic Hospital. It became clear that he wasn't a, quote, nasty person and that the anger and belligerence declined with treatment. Here's Dr. Lorazby's concluding opinion that we read in the intro to this episode. Quote, I would point out that psychosis distorts reality, including moral reality, the degree of distortion often matching the severity of the symptoms. When psychosis is severe and sustained, and the patient is isolated from real-world feedback, it becomes increasingly likely that the unpredictable directions of psychotic symptoms will override the patient's moral compass. Psychotic experiences, with their urgency and demand for attention, become the dominant reality for the sufferer, and morality, based on, quote, normal life experiences, fade away. Within the mindset, it is likely that he was incapable of knowing that his actions were morally wrong in the real world. The third and final forensic psychiatrist testifying at trial was Dr. Eileen Brunette. She was the clinical director at the East Coast Forensic Hospital where Cody had been housed since January 2015. She stated that as Cody's treatment progressed, he was more open about discussing his recollections of events. Cody told her that he believed he was a child of light and that he had nanotechnology implanted in his body. In addition, he also reported that he thought he was changing the world when he killed his loved ones and that it would turn over into a better world. Cody also described an experience he had at the annual Musquodobit exhibition where he saw gases rising above the trees and then said he levitated above those trees. Cody shared this exact same experience back in 2012 
when he was involved with the mental health court program. Cody talked about having an internal compass which told him what to do, how to think, and how to act. He spoke about, quote, psychotic flaring, which he described as freaking out, and this was the case on the morning of January 7th, 2015. He spoke about being puppeted and receiving communication from God. As this was happening, he thought he heard the mill on the property running and packed some tools to go there. He went, he said, to his grandparents' home to get some water and said he remembered speaking to his grandfather about paying for the power, which had been shut off, and his mind just popped. He then felt out of control, with something telling him that killing his family would achieve a better world as a sacrifice to bring heaven over. Cody said he felt justified in killing his family as he was doing it, and it all happened very quickly. When Dr. Burnett was asked what objective factors she relied on when giving her opinion, she stated that Cody had a provable history of ongoing untreated psychosis as recently as October of 2014, just months before the triple homicide. She also went on to describe Cody's demeanor when he was first brought to the East Coast Forensic Hospital. She said he was actively showing signs of psychosis at that time, and when transferred to the hospital, early on he appeared stressed and disorganized with his behavior. He was mumbling to himself on a regular basis, which is often suggestive of auditory hallucinations. He continued to express delusional beliefs in the early interviews and was preoccupied with his belief that since 2011, he had stepped into something that he believed to be a plastic explosive. Here's Dr. Brunette's full opinion from the court record. I concur with the opinions of Dr. Theriot and Lorasby regarding Mr. Henniger qualifying for a Section 16 mental disorder defense for all of his charges. It is unarguable that Mr. Henniger has the mental disorder of schizophrenia and that the symptoms arising from this illness were directly responsible for Mr. Henniger's actions. His account of the symptoms, the passivity phenomena of being puppeted in his physical actions and receiving mental guidance from the compass associated with disassociative symptoms of disconnection from his emotions and actions rendered him incapable of appreciating the wrongfulness of his conduct. Indeed, it is a reflection of how unwell he was that he thought he could tell me that he felt right and justified in his actions even though they had not been pre-planned. He was not in control of his own body, and his understanding of why he was doing it was really only unfolding concurrently with when he was doing it. His analogy of being a puppet is quite apt because not only was he being controlled physically, but he also had the experience of the intent being outside his awareness. It was in the hands of the puppet master, so to speak, and not his own. Another explanation for Cody's actions was presented at trial, and this was referred to as the anger theory. The basis of this theory is essentially that Cody wasn't experiencing psychosis. Instead, that an argument had broken out inside the Ward household that day, which caused Cody to snap. Here's what the judge had to say about this alternate theory. Quote, It would be erroneous to simply accept that there was an argument and things went badly. According to Dr. Theriot, who had the most contact with him, you would have to set aside the strong evidence of a psychotic illness immediately before and what was obvious to him immediately after the offense. Dr. Burnett stated that she had no doubt that there was a mental disorder because he was still psychotic after the offense and because he was still struggling with what, in fact, he was supposed to have done. She saw no red flags in terms of him feigning what happened or feigning the illness. 
which of course also makes the anger theory much less likely. Eventually, on January 31st, 2017, the judge ruled that Cody Henniger was not criminally responsible for beating his grandparents and his mother to death before setting the house on fire. Judge Patrick J. Murray concluded, I find the defendant, Cody Henniger, committed the acts that formed the basis of three counts of second-degree murder in the indictment, but at the time was suffering from a mental disorder so as to make him exempt from criminally responsible by virtue of Section 16.1. I therefore find Mr. Henniger not criminally responsible. Reactions of both family members as well as attorneys were mixed. The Crown prosecutor stated, It's hard to find anything to celebrate on a day like this. Malcolm Jeffcock, who was the defense attorney, called the case a tragic situation, but agreed with the judge's decision. He went on to say, It's a sad, sad day for the family and the accused, but it is an appropriate outcome and a just one. Outside the courthouse, Tim Ward, who was Anne's brother and the son of Bill and Ida Ward, said, I don't know what we wanted, and that he doesn't feel any closure now that the court case had concluded. He went on to say that it's important for everyone to educate themselves about mental illness. So what happened to Cody after being found criminally not responsible? Well, he was returned to the East Coast Forensic Hospital, and it would be up to the Criminal Code Review Board to determine if and when he would be eligible for release. From that day forward, the families of the victims as well as the accused would have to attend annual meetings where the Criminal Code Review Board would listen to a team of mental health experts as well as the family members and the Crown Prosecutor to determine whether or not Cody was going to remain in the psychiatric facility or if he should be granted freedom with conditions. The first of these meetings happened just seven months after Cody was found criminally not responsible in court, and just two months after Cody had transitioned to a new cocktail of antipsychotic medications. The team of mental health professionals argued that Cody should be eligible for unescorted day passes, stating that Cody shows no signs of aggression, violence, or psychotic symptoms. In contrast, members of Cody's family, as well as the Crown Prosecutor, argued that he was not ready to function on his own in society. Cody's brother Chandler stated that he wants to see Cody rehabilitated, but it's too soon to give him more freedom. Chandler told the board, quote, please don't risk it yet. Chandler also spoke about how he suffers from night terrors and worries about his family members and his neighbor's safety. A neighbor who lived nearby Cody at the time of the homicides was steadfast in her concerns. She stated, You're sugarcoating the fact that this man violently bludgeoned a family to death. She went on to detail incidents of Cody making threats within the community and described him as a manipulative and vindictive person. She said, Please, I want justice. Two years is not enough for this man. Whether he was not criminally responsible or not, he killed three people and the family dog. I want him in long enough that we know he is not a threat. According to an article from Global News in 2017, here's what the Crown Prosecutor had to say to the board at this meeting. This has all been very quick. There is a significant threat to public safety. The severity of the outcome if things go wrong is the main factor to consider. Now, Cody's family members were somewhat divided in their opinions at this juncture, We've already heard from Cody's brother Chandler, who wasn't quite ready for his brother to be granted more freedoms, but there were family members who felt that Cody was ready to be integrated into the community. 
one of Cody's aunts on his father's side of the family said that she had seen an improvement in Cody. She said that when he was initially taken into custody, she observed that he was in rough shape and that he wasn't himself. When she looked into his eyes at that time, she described them as black holes. But now she saw a big and gentle soul before stating that she loved him and doesn't think he's a risk. Ultimately, in a five-to-one decision, the board denied the request to grant Cody more freedoms in 2017. They said more time was needed to ensure he was mentally stable. The next meeting that would take place would be in 2018, and this time it was no different. The mental health professionals, including Dr. Scott Terrio, were adamant that Cody was ready for more freedoms, citing no signs of violence or psychotic symptoms, and that Cody had completed all the programming given to him at the East Coast Forensic Hospital. They also pointed to the fact that he had been successfully enjoying escorted day trips into the community for recreational therapy. But on the other hand, members of Cody's family were continuing to fight to keep him where they believed he belonged. Again, Cody's younger brother Chandler told the board that he didn't think it was right to grant his brother any further freedom considering he had murdered three family members just three years prior. In a quote from a Global News article from March 2018, Chandler said the following to the board, quote, I still don't believe that he's ready. Have you stopped to ask yourself whether or not it's right? And what happens if you're wrong and I'm right? But the board's chairman, Peter Lederman, said that Cody must be given a chance to rejoin society under the careful observation of the hospital. Peter continued, quote, The main duty of the board is to ensure public safety, while also enabling Mr. Henniger's advancement. This entails a step-by-step reintegration into the community. So in 2018, the board granted unescorted day passes from the hospital. The chairman did stress that Cody would need to earn greater freedoms first by having unescorted access to just the hospital grounds. From there, Cody would work his way up to having unescorted passes away from the hospital for a minimum of three hours, up to a maximum of 12 hours. There were conditions, though, one being that Cody would need to stay away from the Musquodobit Valley, where many of his family members still resided. He wasn't allowed to access to any weapons, and he would need to maintain contact with staff at the hospital and provide an itinerary of his day away from the grounds. So where did things sit today with Cody Henniger? Well, on April 16th, 2022, the Nova Scotia Review Board conditionally discharged him from the East Coast Forensic Hospital. Here are the conditions that Cody Henniger needs to follow. It is ordered that the accused be conditionally discharged on the following terms. 1. Keep the peace and be of good behavior. 2. Maintain good mental health. 3. Adhere to the recommendations of the community mental health team. 4. Comply with follow-up by the forensic community program. 5. Comply with conditions recommended by the forensic community program. 6. Abstain from alcohol cannabis, and or illicit drugs, and comply with random urine drug screening. 7. Reside in the premises approved by the East Coast Forensic Hospital and abide by the rules and regulations of the residents. 8. Appear before the board when requested. 9. Remain within the province of Nova Scotia unless authorization in writing has been received from the board. 10. Not possess any weapons as defined by the criminal code. 11. 
reside in the urban area of the Halifax Regional Municipality, and 12. Not initiate contact with family members whom we will not name to maintain their privacy. We imagine that the reaction to this has been mixed for Cody's family members. This is obviously an incredibly complicated and multifaceted case where the perpetrator is also a victim of mental illness and was failed by a system that simply isn't robust enough to ensure people don't fall through the cracks. When we asked the family member how they felt about Cody's situation today, they said, None of the family is overly pleased with how many concessions he's been given, how many freedoms he's been given. He is apparently very well medicated and very remorseful, but not everyone believes that. Obviously, this brings up a lot of strong feelings for the family, and it's not like he hasn't gone off of his medication before. Cody's brother Chandler has been very vocal when it comes to his stance on how the systems in place absolutely failed his brother and his family. The following is a quote from a Global News article from 2017. It really hurts, because it's sad when you see someone that really needs help and you know that they're not a bad person and they deserve that help and it's not being given to them. Chandler also shared that he hopes his decision to speak out will kickstart changes to the mental health system. Quote, I want something to be different. Something's got to give. Maybe we could do something about it so people don't have to die in vain or die at all. We asked the family how our listeners can help and here's what they said. Listeners can contribute to the fund that still supports Cody's younger sister on her journey through school. There's a GoFundMe that we will absolutely link in our show notes. They also suggested for our listeners to learn and share more resources about mental health and schizophrenia. They think that that would be wonderful. They also invite people to write to the MPs in Nova Scotia to push for fewer freedoms for violent offenders, regardless of their mental status. Also, writing to them to push for more programming to help those who need attention and treatment for their mental status. So we'll be linking the GoFundMe as well as where to find the current Nova Scotia MPs and how to contact them in our show notes. We ask you to donate if you can and please write to the MPs. Let's push for better access to mental health support and stricter conditions for violent offenders. Getting help for a mental health condition can be difficult. There's a patchwork quilt of services across the country. There are long waits and costs associated with high-level treatment. There are also charter rights that need to be considered, making involuntary treatment rare unless the individual is a direct threat to themselves or others. All over Canada, there are friends and family members who lay awake at night worrying about their loved ones who live with severe or even mild mental health diagnosis. They wonder if they're safe. Are they suffering? Will they ever get the help they need? Is there something they could have done differently? Parents across this country wish they could just make the suffering go away. But they can't. While the services are getting better, there is still a long way to go. According to the Canadian government website, if you or someone you love is in mental health-related distress, you can contact help through Wellness Together Canada. To connect with a mental health professional one-on-one, for youth, you can call 1-888-668-6810 or you can text WELLNESS to 686868. For adults, you can call 1-866-585-0445 or you can text WELLNESS to 741741. You can also visit Wellness Together Canada to access different levels of support, including one-on-one counseling, credible articles and information, self-guided courses and programs, and peer support and coaching. 
If you or someone you know is thinking about suicide, you can call Talk Suicide Canada at 1-833-456-4566. Support is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. If you need to call the police for a wellness check on someone you love or care about, please make sure to provide as much detail as possible to the authorities so that they can best approach the situation. If you or someone else is in immediate danger or a danger to others, please call 911. Thank you for joining us for this episode of True North True Crime. We will be back soon with a new episode. So until then, stay safe, everyone. Stay safe. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.